name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brethren in Christ, love day to Jesus Christus in secula. This is Timothy Flanders at the Meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Happy to be joined once again by Dr. E. Michael Jones. Dr. Jones, it's an honor. How are you doing? It's always a pleasure to be here. I'm doing fine. Wonderful. Wonderful. So viewers, if you're not familiar with Dr. Jones's work, I introduced everyone to Dr. Jones last week, talking about various works that he's done. He has very many texts. It's hard to know where to begin, but I want to appeal to all the viewers to subscribe to Culture Wars, especially for Catholics, faithful Catholics, to support Catholic intellectuals like Dr. Jones, who have been canceled from pretty much everything. Amazon, YouTube, Twitter, I don't know what, what else, probably other things you've been canceled from. Um, but just for speaking the truth, fighting for the truth, and that's what Dr. Jones does at Culture Wars. So we're going to be discussing his latest article at Culture Wars. It's going to be coming out in the next month's issue, and it is called Joseph It's Joseph Ratzinger and the German Problem, right? Isn't that the title? Yes. Excellent. So we'll talk about today, we'll talk about a little bit about JRS, Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, talk about the article. We'll talk about your questions. Before we begin with that, Dr. Jones, your latest book, The Problem uh, or The Dangers of Beauty, right? That, yes. Is that coming this year? <laughs> I, this is another Michigan issue uh, here. I, I have Michigan. <laughs> I have a lot of Michigan issues. Uh, uh, this is that the, the printer uh, just uh, was supposed to deliver the books on May 25th. Uh, uh, the printer is in Grand Rapids. Uh, and now there's a two week delay and now there's a computer hack. So I urge all of your uh, viewers to say a prayer that I get these books. The book is The Dangers of Beauty, The Conflict Between Mimesis and Concupiscence in the Fine Arts. It's the sequel to Logos Rising uh, because the good, the true, and the beautiful are all transcendentals and they all lead to being uh, the being of God. And in many ways, the fastest way to be in God's presence is through beauty. Uh, anybody can apprehend beauty. Lots of people have trouble with uh, logic, uh, following philosophically uh, metaphysics, which is the topic of Logos Rising. But beauty is something that is accessible to everyone. Uh, that's fantastic. I'm very excited for this text in particular. Logos Rising is, is definitely my favorite book of yours, which I love. And Thank you. Yeah, it's really, for viewers, Logos Rising, I think, is one of the greatest texts of the 21st century. Seriously, it's very fantastic. It's very important. So uh, on that note, Logos is the central part of your thesis in Jewish revolutionary spirit. And reading through the second edition, I haven't made it through the second edition yet, uh, but looking through and looking at the research that I've done, um, I've come to the conclusion so far that the Jewish revolutionary spirit is a reflection of an internal debate that was already going before Christ regarding Logos and the Greek Logos uh, and adopting that and the, the corruption of the tradition for, through the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, and so it seems to me that after Christ, there arises generally these three parties of Jews. Some Jews become the apostles and they are baptized, etc. 
But then there's this eternal internal war from there between these more rational type Jews who are taking the uncreated logos contained in the Old Testament and they're still believing in the Decalogue and all that type of thing. Whereas uh, there are these the, the very the JRS Jews, the voluntarist Jews, anti-logos Jews who fight against them throughout history. And I see this in particular where Maimonides arises and he attempts to appropriate the, the Greek logos. And then they, the Kabbalist Jews in southern France burn his works. And this continues on and on and on. I see this in the modern period with the Orthodox Jews versus the liberal Jews who really have the dominance. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? To me, I think that's a, a deeper internal structure, eternal internal um, debate among Jews. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, as I remember it, it's the party of Hillel, Hillel versus, versus the party of Shammai. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the main reason I wrote the, uh, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit was to come to some type of understanding of the, what the Jew is. And uh, the only way I could have written that book is using the word Logos, because uh, the Jews rebelled against Logos when they killed the Logos incarnate. And they've been in rebellion against Logos ever since. So you can have disagreements about how you're going to rebel against Logos, but I think they're all pretty much inside the same project. And and uh, the the, the the similarities, uh, as far as I'm concerned, outweigh the differences. Now, I, I, I mentioned this to you uh, in an email. Uh, we have a recent development here, which is basically the leaked uh, justice, uh, the leaking of Justice Alito's opinion on Roe versus Wade. Apparently, the the uh, <clears throat> Supreme Court is getting ready to overturn Roe versus Wade, and this has sparked a Jewish reaction. Now, this is new. This is new. I've been I've been involved in this for fifty years now. You know, one way or the other, and this is new because the Jews are now coming out and they are saying uh, that if you if the Supreme Court uh, first of all, the G abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Now, this the ADL said this, and for once, I agree with the ADL. I think he's. I think they're right. Uh, and they go taking it further. Other Jews are getting involved, and they're saying if you prevent uh, abortion, access to abortion, you will prevent Jews from practicing their religion. Now, I posted this on the Internet and I said abortion is the Jewish sacrament, which was my polemical way of dealing with this. And of course, there was outrage reaction of some uh, one Jew who uh, I said, well, you know, your argument isn't with me. Your argument is with the ADL. And he says, well, they're not really Jews. I said, well, wait a minute. What, are, are you the Jewish pope? You can excommunicate other Jews here? What's, what's going on here? And then uh, just this cascade of articles all on the same theme. There's one of them in the, uh, you're, you put it up there, uh, Washington Post, a rabbi from St. Louis. I think his name's Bogard. He's at the Susan Talvid uh, uh, synagogue. Uh, they're saying this is exactly the same thing. If you prevent if you eliminate abortion, you're violating uh, the, the Jews' ability to practice their religion. And then finally, another rabbi, I kept looking for the link and I couldn't find it. This rabbi stands up there and he says, across the board, 
every Jew, Jewish organization from the Orthodox to the Reconstructionist to the Conservative to the Reform, they all agree that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Well, yeah. I, I think, I, I, what am I going to do? I'm going to rest my case here. There is a unity here that I think transcends all of these little differences. And the unity is, is hatred of Logos, manifested in the ability to, 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 to destroy human life that I think goes all the way back to the worship of Moloch. I think these are the descendants of the Moloch worshipers. Yeah, I, the, obviously that does rest your case. All I'm saying is that, that when I looked at this, I didn't I didn't research the Orthodox Jewish opinion, but most of these Jews don't even believe that. I mean, the liberal Jews don't even believe that the Old Testament is a revelation from God. Um, Orthodox Jews are the only ones who take their religion seriously. And what I what I can see from the Orthodox Jews is that that they do believe abortion is murder, but they allow certain exceptions to it. Is all I could see, but I didn't research it very closely. That's why I was wondering. I mean, some guy can come up and obviously say that the Orthodox uh, say that, but the Jews have been internally debating this obviously for two two thousand years plus. Um, I just that, that's the whole point of Judaism. It became a debating society after the destruction of the temple. The Jews have uh, no religion. They cannot they cannot fulfill the Mosaic covenant. There are certain specifications. You have to have a temple, a priesthood, and you have to have sacrifice. They're all gone. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai recognized this and said to the Titus, let me form a school. And it's the synagogue or the shul. And we'll just talk around and we'll debate forever. And they're still debating. And the, the record of the debate was the Talmud, which goes on and on and on, back and forth, never comes to any conclusion. This is all bereft of Logos. And that is what these have in common. Now we're just talking about religious Jews. Why is that? Why are they just? Why are we just talking about them? What about the Jews who are not religious? Are you saying they're not Jews? I'm saying that you have to take this whole thing into consideration, and you would take the whole gamut from the Baal Shem Tov to Trotsky. What you have is a rebellion against Logos that is the defining characteristic of the Jew. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I'm simply saying that there's other Jews, the Orthodox Jews, siding with the Inquisition against the Kabbalist Jews in southern France. The, sure. the Orthodox Jews siding with the Legion of Decency in the early 20th sure. century. You have these Orthodox sure. Jews who end up siding with the Christians against the other Jews and their allies who are pushing for abortion and all sorts of pornography and extra XYZ. Now, wait a minute. I'm talking about the Jewish people. This is what I tried to do when I talk about the, the gospel. Did the Jew Who killed Christ? It was the Jewish people that killed Christ. That's what St. Paul says. He always talks about the Jewish people. Well, what do you mean by the Jewish people? Do you mean every single Jew? Did the Blessed Mother yell, crucify him? Did St. John, standing at the foot of the cross, yell, crucify him? Of course not. So the Jewish people does not mean every single Jew. And we all know examples of this. You know, I know Jews uh, are just... Uh, Article uh, published a letter to the editor from Yehuda Littman, one of the biggest fans of Culture Wars magazine. He says he's a better Jew because he reads Culture Wars. <laughs> oh, I, really? I, I, yeah, that's not, I'm not making that up. That's what he said. He lives in the Bronx, an Orthodox Jew. Uh, we all know, we all know examples like this. 
I'm not talking about the exception. I'm talking about the rule. And the rule is basically the Jewish people, which is the political mobilization of the Jewish people, of all of these people, to thwart Logos, to thwart the the movement of Logos in human history. That's what it's been for 2,000 years. Now, I, I again, I don't disagree, but I would also place the JRS within a larger battle between the city of God and city of man in which the Mohammedans play a large role, for example. And I, I see the, the reception of Maimonides as very much contrast with the reception of Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushd and how Ghazali becomes sort of the quintessential Sunni, Sunni Muslim. Uh, who, who's completely anti-Logos. And the, they, they try to put Logos into Islam. It, they vomit it out. Uh, but as you say in Logos Rising. But the Shia, obviously they accept it a little bit, but they're a minority view. But um, compared to Moses Maimonides, who has this Greek rationalism, at least, this gets, that gets fully integrated into rabbinic Judaism as one voice among the debate. Um so would you, wouldn't you say that JRS is, the Jewish people is one enemy of Christ throughout history, but the Muslims are also play a role and all these other enemies kind of coalesce into the city of man? Uh, it depends on the Muslim. Uh, are you talking about Averroes? Are you talking about Ibn Sina, Avicenna? I think these were people who were sincere in their desire to understand the Logos. I think they were. I don't think I think they failed, but I think they were sincere. I think that the, the whole point of my talking, my my contact with Iran was to understand a group uh, of people that struggled valiantly to preserve uh, their connection with Logos against a religion that seemed to determine to uh, determine to extinguish it. Uh, that's the story of uh, Avicenna. That's the story of uh Ibn Rushd of, of Averroes, uh, these people c- carried Aristotle. They had Aristotle before the Christians. They tried valiantly to understand it. I think, who was it? Was it, I think it was Av- uh, Avicenna uh, who said, I read, I read Aristotle's metaphysics 40 times before I understood it. Or was it Ibn Rushd saying I had to read Avicenna? Anyway, one of these guys, I read, I read the metaphysic 40 times before I understood it, before I read whoever it was. That's, that's a persistent attempt to, to make contact with Logos. And it was thwarted because by, you're right. I mean, people like Al-Ghazali uh, uh, basically felt that uh, it was uh, not in keeping. You couldn't be pious and think at the same time. You know, you had to choose one or the other. You had to choose faith or religion uh, and uh, I'm sorry, faith or reason. And that's been the, 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 the legacy of Logos in Islam ever since where the light was extinguished. It was there before it was in uh, the, the, the attempt to understand Aristotle was there before it happened in Europe. And it was extinguished by the caliph. The caliph basically became, I think Allah is basically an exalted caliph, a man who says basically is interested in political power. He's interested in submission. Your duty is to submit and to basically uh, take your reason and and uh, leave it alone. So I think it's more complicated than that. Yeah, I think that that's that's all I'm saying, too. I think it's more complicated than that. I think um, I think that there is a parallel 
uh, you said striving to uh, understand logos. There is a parallel with the minority group among the Muslims who try to have logos. And I think that there is a minority group among the Jews who do the same thing, but they don't, they don't gain the ascendancy, especially in the modern period. But there, if, if, was there ever a group among the Jews, like the Motazilites uh, among the, among the Muslims? I, I would, the followers of Moses Maimonides. I would put him as, as, as similar to the Mutazilites in terms of uh, uh, an appropriation of logos and an integration, an attempt to integrate logos into his own, into rabbinic Judaism. I, didn't, the I mean, rabbi, didn't the rabbis ask the Inquisition to burn the books of Maimonides? Yeah, but that's, that's the internal struggle between the, the, right. the, the um, Zohar Jews in southern France. But we, let's get into your article. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you, so the, the main aspect of this article which is the article basically you um this is a review of peter seawall's um life of benedict which i would um re recommend to everyone it's very long two volumes i haven't finished it yet um but a, a critical piece of this is the phrase holocaust narrative now i understand you to say when you say holocaust narrative what you mean by that is um what came out of um what was it Isaac Israel, I can't remember, the guy in 1946, who, who basically says that Hitler was a result of Catholic anti-Semitism. Hitler equals, like, basically every Catholic is a Nazi. Jules basically. Isaac. I think you're Jules referring Isaac. to Jules yeah, yeah, yeah. Isaac. So, yeah. so would you say that that's, that's kind of the Holocaust narrative, is, is basically Catholicism created anti-Semitism, created Nazis, so therefore the German people as a whole are guilty of Nazism, or Catholic Church as a whole is guilty of Nazism, so they have to placate this narrative would you say that is the holocaust narrative or how would no, you define it no okay no no that's not it that's the ancestral jewish animus against uh, catholicism and they're just trying to hang it on a, a, a contemporary nail and the nazis are a contemporary nail so that's what they that's what jules, jules isaac did this goes all the way back to you know uh the, you know confronting saint stephen you know, when the Jews don't like you, they pick up stones and they throw stones at you. You know, they don't argue with you. They pick up stones and, and they try to kill you. No, the Holocaust narrative is something else. The Holocaust narrative is basically a creation of World War II. So we're talking about um, uh, basically a, a, a narrative that was part that began as part of the propaganda campaign that the Allies waged against the Nazis uh, during World War II. So the, the beginning of it would probably be uh, the BBC uh, broadcasting uh, stories that they got from Poland uh, because the, Pol the uh, Polish government in exile was in London at that time. And they had contacts with these people and there was talks now of gas chambers. This was happening, and the BBC started talking about this. If you go to Zewald's, uh, I think it's the same biography, but Zewald asked uh, Ratzinger a question, like, when did you first hear about this? He said, uh, a political broadcast. He was referring to the BBC. So they heard them during the war. They had never, there was no evidence. There was nothing they didn't hear. And then they were confirmed after the war. This is what I mean by the, the Holocaust narrative. So those stories start circulating. Now, there was a, a conflation that, that was going on here. And this conflation goes all the way back to the 19th century. And the, basically, the, the Jewish revolutionary spirit uh, eventuating in terrorism, 
uh, Narodnaya Volia succeeded in murdering the Tsar. That set off pogroms. And now you have large numbers of Jews that are marching westward to get to Hamburg because they want to get on a ship that will take them to New York City. Okay, now. What you have here is a group of people, the Jews, who are living in the shtetl, where they have basic medieval conditions, hasn't changed since the Middle Ages, and medieval hygiene, which means that this group of people is infested with lice and vermin, and they're now marching toward a country which is the absolute forefront of modern hygiene. And I'm talking about Germany, I'm talking about Koch and his postulates and all this other type of stuff. And they get there and they are subjected to something that was terrified them and they didn't understand. The train pulled up. Everyone was emptied off the train. They were marched in, divided by sexes, marched into a room, stripped of their clothes, subjected to a shower. They had never seen a shower before in their lives. Their clothes at this point are also being fumigated with a gas called Cyclone B, which basically kills vermin, kills lice. Then they're out, they're terrified, uh, and then they get their clothes on, they get back on the train, and they start spreading these stories. Now, the conflation is Cyclone B and the showers. They come together, and that's the story that starts circulating through the, the BBC during World War II. At this point, you know, we have the end of the war, uh, and you have Eisenhower and the army uh, arriving, the American army arriving at a concentration camp called Ordruf. Now, there were concentration camps. The Jews were rounded up as an alien group and put in these concentration camps. And then what happened at that point, it, it depends on, on who you talk to. So the Allies were engaged in saturation bombing of the German people. This is a war crime. It's also uh, immoral behavior, and immoral behavior creates guilt. And so there was this guilt on the part of the Americans about that. They were a little bit unsure of their moral standing. They need to convince the world. So Eisenhower ends up at Ordruf. He walks into the camp, and there are dead bodies lying all over the place. Uh, some wearing that uh, striped uh, uniform. Uh, that's a category of reality. That existed. That was real. But the question is, how did they die? And if you look at these bodies, you see that they're all emaciated. Uh, and the the issue here is how did the, what was the situation in the camps at this point? There were no gas chambers at Ordruf, none whatsoever. Okay. At this point, Eisenhower seized on a moment. He had the propaganda arm there, uh, General McClure, uh, and uh, called in uh, Patton and Omar Bradley. And then he sent a, a, a message to uh, General Marshall in Washington, send over the uh, press. We're going to show the world what barbarians these Nazis are. Now, those people didn't die of gas. They weren't gassed. There were no gas chambers there. They died of the diseases that I just talked about. Uh, which were spreading rampantly throughout these camps. They died of starvation because the Allies had bombed the uh, rail lines leading to these camps. Uh, the camps were also overcrowded. So what Eisenhower did uh, was basically Buchenwald is down the road. He sent uh, <clears throat> propaganda warriors like C.D. Jackson there, and we're going to have we're going to film this now. And on top of that, we're going to get the people from Weimar. We're going to march them out. Patton marched a thousand people out about six miles. And we're going to witness what we're going to show the Germans what they did. And so the, the table there, it's a table. It's got two shrunken heads. It's got a lampshade. 
made out of human skin, allegedly, and a pelvis that has been used as an ashtray. This is what the Holocaust is. As of this film, we got Billy Wilder, the famous Billy Wilder, who will go on to be uh, make some like it hot with Marilyn Monroe, one of the most successful directors in Hollywood, uh, filming this as it goes on. And they they filmed the wrong stuff. It was a colossal mistake to do this. They should have been back to Ordrov because they had dead bodies. There are no dead bodies here. It was a it was a, 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 a mistake. But that is the beginning of the Holocaust narrative. One propaganda film by Billy Wilder about the Americans. At the same time, the British contact Alfred Hitchcock, who is in Hollywood, feeling a little guilty because he spent the war in Hollywood. He goes over, but he don't. He doesn't fly, so he has to take a train to New York. Then he's got to get on a ship, and he arrives. And basically, they show him Bergen-Belsen, and no one's there. The bodies have all been buried. But they have footage of Bergen-Belsen. And Bergen-Belsen was a much better example because you had corpses all over the place. You had trenches full of corpses. And this was the case because when the Soviets are approaching from the east, they come to Auschwitz. And the people at Auschwitz, including Elie Wiesel, by the way, were all given right. a choice, given a choice. Uh, do you want to be captured by the Soviets or do you want to go to Bergen-Belsen? Elie Wiesel chose to go with the Germans to Bergen-Belsen, which doesn't make sense if it's an extermination camp. So you have all of these bodies. Hitchcock takes the film. And these are the basically the two propaganda films that become the beginning of what we now call the Holocaust narrative. Okay, so and centrally, it is the exact... Um repetition of there's six million jews who died in gas chambers and all the details the, the you, he mentioned the um the lamps or the human skin lamp shade that was disproven in the, i think the nurburn trials if i recall um but so ratzinger grows up he or he's he's entering seminaries during ordained a priest i think in the 50s and he grows up in post-war West Germany, where the Allies are controlling all the information. He watches the propaganda films. And then you mention in your article what happens at Vatican II. And this is a quote from the article. You say, so quoting Ratzinger, you say, Ratzinger says, it is also necessary to say that the Jewish people as a whole living at the time did not perpetrate the execution of Christ, end quote. And then you comment and say this, there is a theological contradiction here. If the Jewish people as a whole were not responsible for the death of Christ, why were the German people as a whole responsible for the Holocaust? Ratzinger could have used the Second Vatican Council to clarify the issue. Um, so how do you parse that with, because um, I think of St. Peter's speech to the Jews at Pentecost, and it says in the text that not all the Jews there, they were from all over the place, the Roman Empire. Um, but he does say, you killed Christ to right. all the Jews there. Right. Um, so how do you parse this and can you comment on and unpack what you say in this article in terms of the Jewish guilt or the, sorry, the German guilt for the Holocaust with this narrative? Okay, so what happened to the German people at this time? They were subjected to the most ruthless form of social engineering in the history of the human race because no one had ever had the technology uh, that they had at that time. And the point of this was to convince the German people that they were guilty, that they bore some enormous guilt because of what happened to the Jews. OK, I think that Ratzinger uh, basically accepted 
the Holocaust narrative. I think he accepted it. I think he accepted this understanding of German guilt. And he didn't particularly like it. Didn't particularly like it. As, and it, it left him divided. He was divided in his feelings toward this, this situation. So at this point, he's a rising star in the Catholic Church in Germany. He comes to the attention of Cardinal Frings, who is the Cardinal Archbishop of Cologne, and a man who is a genuine hero in the post-war, in post-war Germany. This is the man who stood up to the, the Jews. I'm talking specifically to the Morgenthau plan, which was basically to starve the German people to death. Okay, he stood up and said, if there's a warehouse down the street that has food, you have, uh, uh, you can go into that warehouse, take the food. It's not, it's not theft. Now, this is a man who also understood that uh, even if he couldn't articulate it, that there was uh, what we would call psychological warfare that continued after the Morgenthau plan. Okay, the Morgenthau plan was, it was a disaster. The adults finally at, in the United States State Department finally realized we have to get, we can't let Jews determine our foreign policy because they're probably going to bring the communists in. And that's, I think, what was happening. Harry Dexter White was his aide, main aide, and he was a communist spy. So the new plan is, comes in, and that's the Marshall Plan, and they're flooded with money, but at the same time, they're flooded with the, the, the prime vehicle of social engineering at this point, which is pornography. Pornography floods into Germany at this point, now that they have money. And the main man who opposes pornography is the same man who opposed uh, the Jew Morgenthau. It's Cardinal Frings, who has a group called, it's called the Volkswagenbund. Uh, which is the uh, which basically the Legion of Decency. It's the German Legion of Decency, and they are fighting. Frings is calling for uh, insurrection. He basically uh, has people uh, Germans coming to this, the movie theaters and disrupting the uh, the showing of what they consider pornographic, uh, not pornographic or obscene films. Now this is going on at the same time. And Ratzinger is moving up, and we're coming to some type of climax here, okay? Uh, the Jews are not going to take no for an answer here. This, this is an international effort, both in Germany and the United States, to break uh, what in America was called the production code in Germany was the uh, obscenity laws. And uh, the crisis comes in uh, the 60s in both countries, uh, the Swedes were the ones who were responsible. There's a guy named a Swede by the name of Harry Schein, who was a Jew from Austria, who was coordinating Hollywood's collaboration with Ingmar Bergman, the famous Jewish film, uh, sorry, Swedish filmmaker. And so the the film that comes out in Germany is called uh, The Silence, Das Schweigen. And it causes outrage uh, in Germany and a crisis. Because at the same time the film comes out, the Germans are losing their nerve. The church is backing away from the defense of the moral order and obscenity laws. And I'm saying this is exactly the same time that Frings, Frings has met, met Ratzinger in 1959, thinks he's a genius, ein Wunderkind. He says, would you come to... Uh, Rome with me, we're going to have a council. And so 1959, 1960, he goes down, Ratzinger goes down to Rome and becomes basically uh, the man behind the curtain. 
Frings may have said it in public, but it's Ratzinger's words that he's he's saying now. Ratzinger is the man here. He and he's take not only that as he using Frings, he takes control of the council. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the council was the idea for the council came from Cardinal Ottaviani, who uh, watched the church basically. It come into a state of paralysis during the last days of Pius XII and felt that we have to deal with we have to deal with the modern world. Okay. And so he wrote these things called the preliminary documents. It's a book you can get. It's at the Notre Dame Library. It's where I read it. And when you read it, you see that there is a, a kind of equal balance here. Obviously, communism is a threat, but he's also saying America is a threat. And he says it in basically mentioning two things, psychoanalysis and Hollywood. They are a threat to Catholic culture. Well, these are two Jewish operations. And uh, so he's adverting to what used to be called the Jewish question. And at this point, he collides with Ratzinger and basically Ratzinger wins. He gets the preliminary documents thrown out. You can read it. It's in the whole, it's in Zavald's biography. It goes on. Zavald uh, thinks it's a great triumph. It's certainly a triumph for Ratzinger, but what you're doing here is you're taking someone who had, I think, a balanced view of the way the world was going. In other words, your Catholicism is being threatened from two sides, both the United States and the, and the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and he had a balanced response to it, and it goes just disappears. Those documents get thrown out because of Ratzinger, and then Ratzinger comes up with a new plan. And I'm saying this is the plan that's in Gaudium's the church has nothing to fear from the modern world. We don't want to dwell on the past. We don't want this negative stuff. Well, this is precisely the, I mean, you couldn't have gotten a work. Uh, uh, this is exactly what needed to be done in the battle against obscenity. So you got this this kind of Pollyanna stuff coming out of Ratzinger and Gaudium et Spes, while the same the 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 uh, moral order is being completely subverted in Germany because of these obscene films that will only get worse because Rats, because Fring's attention is totally distracted by Rome, and so what you have here in both Germany and the United States in the '60s is a complete failure of nerve. So Schweigen, The Silence, was released in America. It got nowhere because it's a foreign film. We don't watch foreign films. Uh, but they tried next year. They tried to break the code with a, a, a sex farce called Kiss Me Stupid, 1964, with Dean Martin and Kim Novak. That didn't work. And so they rolled out the big guns. And guess what the big gun was here? The Holocaust. The Pawn Broker is a movie about Holoca the Holocaust. It's also the beginning of the genre known as Holocaust porn which is a whole genre in itself. Uh, why do I say that? Because the, begin the crucial moment in the Holocaust is where a, pro a black prostitute comes into the pawnbroker's uh, business. Uh, it's played by Rod Steiger. Takes off her blouse, bare breasts on the screen. You just broke the production code. But now the Catholics have lost their nerve because this is art. And this is the Holocaust. And we can't criticize the Holocaust. This is 1965 I'm talking about. They just passed Nostra Tate. Jews are our friends now. We don't want to hurt the Jews' feelings by doing this. They, we don't like this negative stuff. And this result was a catastrophe for Germany and a catastrophe for the United States 
of America, because what I'm saying, what Ratzinger did here was basically not only did he accept the Holocaust narrative, he imposed the Holocaust narrative on the entire Catholic Church. And it would come back to bite him. And I'm talking about Ratzinger becomes Pope. Okay. I talked, to, I talked to a friend who talked to Cardinal George. Cardinal George said they, they, they elected Ratzinger because they wanted him to deal with the German problem. The German problem. You know what the German problem is? The synod. Have you heard of German synod? The German problem is, first of all, Holocaust, this guilt complex because of the Holocaust leading to sexual liberation uh, leading to the complete collapse of morality in Germany and the total enslavement of the German population. That's what happened. That's what Ratzinger should have dealt with. Just as Pope John Paul II, the first thing he did was to go to Warsaw and work on the Polish problem, which was called communism. Now we have Ratzinger. He comes to Munich in exact parallel to what Wojtyla did. And he, it's got the world's attention. He was throwing a million people were just average. He had the legacy of John Paul II, could attract huge crowds. He goes to Munich, says mass, and then he goes to Regenborg, Regensburg, and he gives a speech about the main problem facing the world, which is Islam. Now, wait a minute. Islam? That's the Regensburg speech. This I said before, but this is like John. This is like John Paul II going to Warsaw in 1979 and saying the main problem we're facing is Mormonism. This is this is what happened here. So I said it came back to bite him. He didn't take on the Holocaust, and as a result, the Holocaust took him on. And I'm talking about the Williamson affair, which wrecked his papacy. He's, he never recovered from this and quit. What was the Williamson affair about? It was Holocaust denial. This is what the, every headline, it was a setup, it was a trap. Zavald is smart enough to understand it was a trap, a trap that was set for Bishop Williamson. I talked to Bishop Williamson about what happened there. He was invited to a documentary, Swedish documentary film. It's those Swedes again. Uh, and uh, they're talking to him, uh, and it's basically, uh, yeah, oh, well, great, uh, that's the end of our discussion, and they start packing up, and then the Swede says to him, and by the way, what do you think of the Holocaust? By the way, no, this isn't by the way, this is the whole point of the trap, and the cameras are still running, and, uh, and um, Williamson says, oh, I think maybe 300,000 Jews died. Well, you just broke the law. Because in the 1990s, after they lost the battle for the mind of the world, the Jews made it illegal to discuss the issue. And that's precisely what happened in Germany. It was Holocaust denial laws. Now, at this point, every headline in the world says, Pope admits Holocaust denier to the church because he had just lifted these excommunications of the four Lefebvreite bishops. And the problem here is, that the church could not deal with that concept. They couldn't deal with it. And so you have uh, people like Father Lombardi, the Jesuit, the absolute worst press secretary in the history of the Catholic <laughs> Church, who couldn't open his mouth without sticking his foot in it, uh, saying, no, no, we, we, we're against Holocaust denial. 
What do you mean by it? First of all, it's a, it's a thing that was created by Debbie Lipstadt in 1993. No one ever heard of it before that time. Why do you? Why did you accept this term? Well, because because they did. They they accepted. I'm saying it goes all the way back to Ratzinger's acceptance of the Holocaust narrative, and it finally came back to bite him, and it ruined his papers. Yeah, I think you you draw upon a lot of important aspects of this with the culture wars and Vatican II and the Ratzker sort of creating the German synodal way in some sense. Um, I'm not convinced that the the Williamson affair was the tipping point because of the way that Benedict revises. He he puts out the Latin mass and he, he revises, he placates the Jews in some way because he revises the Good Friday prayer, but he maintains that the Jews must convert in the prayer. Um, and his resignation happens in 2013, shortly after the Vatty leaks and all that stuff that was going on in the dossier. Um, so it doesn't seem to, it, it, it seems to be, it, it seems to be connected. Like you said, uh, Zewald says, who are these wolves? You, you don't want to flee from the wolves. I think that's one of your most compelling points here because you bring out that what Zewald says or what they say together is, he, well, he sort go, of implies go, that he, he does. Go back, go back to the prayer. Uh, Zewald yeah. is quoting the prayer that Ratzinger said when he was made pope. Please pray that I don't flee when the wolves come. That's the prayer. And then Zewald says, well, what did you mean by that? Yeah, he I, says he says that it's this, this secularized press and the humanizing people who isolate you and when you try to question their stuff, and it's antichrist. Um. Let's, I don't know. I have that quote, but um, it, it certainly implies that he was afraid that he did run from the wolves. Um, I'm not so sure that it, it was only the Jews. I think it was probably the homosexual mafia as well, freezing the Vatican Bank and all this stuff. And who knows what else was going on um, behind the scenes, forcing him out. Um, but I, I think you bring out a lot of great stuff in this article. So people can read the full article. And I want to get some audience questions that we had. Um, some One of our viewers just read Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. He says this. What is a majority population supposed to do about a subset of a minority population hiding behind their compatriots and doing subversive, destructive things towards the majority? What, what should we do as a society or as Catholics? I think that the, the crucial turning point came with uh, Napoleon when he allowed the Jews to become citizens. I don't think you can allow this group to become citizens because they never represent uh, the interest of the country that they're supposed to represent. So I, I, a horrible thing to say. How can you say something like that? Let's let's get ver let's contextualize this to what right now. How many Jews who serve in government right now have dual citizenship? How many Jews uh, agree as Sheldon Adelson did? Now, when when Jonathan Pollard, one of the biggest traitors in the history of the United States, uh, was sprung by uh, uh, Donald Trump. Sheldon Adelson sent a plane to pick him up, his private jet, and he flew him to Israel. And at the bottom of, on the tarmac waiting for him was Benjamin Netanyahu, who greeted him like a hero. And then Pollard went and gave a speech in which he said, every Jew should betray his own country. Now, this is an extreme example, but the dual citizenship is a real problem, a real problem. We had the war in Iraq that was fought 
Americans shed their blood for Israeli interests. We're having the same thing with the Ukraine now. It's a Jewish conspiracy, okay, that got involved in that as well. Now, we are we going to deal with this issue or not? And the way that the countries of Europe traditionally dealt with this issue was you could not allow a Jew to be a citizen because he would never represent the interest of the country in which he lived. He always represented his own ethnic interest at the expense of that country. Yeah, this is the traditional teaching of Sugut Yudais that goes back to St. Gregory the Great. You should go over in Jewish revolutionary spirit. Now, but wouldn't you also say the same about the Muslims? Because they have a whole political, religious identity. Wouldn't you say that we should not make Muslims citizens as well? No. Now, now let, me, let me contextualize that as well. Okay, you have a situation. Uh, we're talking about migration which has created a serious problem. We're talking about the weaponization of migration uh, uh, in which the Jews have paid a, played a major role. And all you have to do is talk, uh, run that clip of uh, Barbara Lerner Specter talking about how the Jews are basically orchestrating. The, so we create these wars in the Middle East. They cause huge upheaval. They cause huge numbers of refugees. And then the, the same group of people is using these refugees, sending them across the Aegean to basically overrun Europe. Now, that's an act of aggression that should not be tolerated. These countries should not allow themselves to be destroyed in this regard. But we're talking about, uh, is it possible uh, for Muslims to integrate into, let's say, American society? In a place like England, you've got the collapse of the traditional culture, basically the collapse of the Anglican church as any having any moral authority, uh, preceded by a complete collapse of uh, morals. And so a create, created a tremendous vacuum, which will be filled uh, by, by the Muslims in that regard. Uh, and the traditional role of the Muslim in Europe has always been the scourge of God. Whenever the Europe uh, Christians fight with each other, the Muslims march up the Danube and take over. Okay? I, I'm, I'm cognizant of that fact, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that in places like Dearborn uh, and the United States, which has a different uh, relationship to immigrants, uh, I think it's possible for these people to assimilate. I, I mean, I, I would say that some Jews can assimilate and some Muslims can assimilate, but other Jews cannot and other Muslims cannot. It, it depends. But I think that the, the very nature, I would say, I mean, I agree with you, like the, the very nature of rabbinic Judaism. But I would say the same thing about uh, if you're going to be a really pious Muslim, you want to overthrow the government and impose Sharia. If you're going to be really pious as a Muslim. Well, that's the same thing that the JRS Jews are doing. So anyways, let, let me get into a few other questions here. How do you, here's another question from a viewer. How do you feel about the Jewish Seder table blessing replacing the traditional offertory in the new mass? What are your thoughts on that? No, no. are you talking about the Last Supper? The I mean, I, I, is this, is this, is this a, 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 an attack on the Novus Ordo Mass? Is that what you're saying? The Last Supper has roots uh, that go, uh, it, it, are you talking about the, the, the Last Supper in which Jesus Christ sat down with his disciples, is that what you mean by the Seder blessing? That's the commemoration of the Passover uh, out of Egypt. I wouldn't call that the Seder blessing. It's what it is now. It's what the Jews do now. 
if you're asking me, should uh, Catholics go to Seder? The answer is no. Uh, but the, the, to say that the Mass is a Seder blessing, I think is a distortion. It's not. Both the Seder or the part of the Jews today and the Catholic Mass, which has the consecration there, uh, both derive from the Passover, the celebration of the Passover. But to say that there, uh, the, the church, the consecrate, or the offertory is a Seder blessing is a distortion. Right. Uh, yeah, that's that's reasonable. Um, Joseph says, shouldn't the emphasis be more on the Judaizing heresy than the Jews since JRS can jump from one place or group to another? Is the, the bigger problems are the Jew, Judaizing heresy since that includes Protestants and Jews in it? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I call it the Jewish revolutionary spirit because the spirit can jump into Christian groups. That's that's precisely the problem that we've had. The Puritans are a classic example of, yes. of, of Judaizers. These are people who act like Jews. Now, why do they act like Jews? Because you hand an Englishman the Bible and he immediately goes to the Old Testament to justify what he's doing. Classic example is John Milton. Read John Milton's tract on divorce. Right. This is classic Puritan Judaizing because his wife left him and uh, he wants to marry another woman. Right. Uh, yeah, that part in Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. I learned that from JRS. Um, what do you think about integralism? How far should the church go to influence the laws of the United States, like blasphemy laws and things? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that... Uh... Okay, you have a, a, a principle uh, we, ca as Catholics, do not believe in the separation of church and state. We believe that the Catholic Church is to the state the way the soul is to the body. Okay, now how that operates in the 20th century in America will be different than how it operates in Austria in the 16th century or whatever, whatever you want, whatever you want to talk about. So I think that... Uh, not, I mean, so if you're saying, should uh, the church uh, be the defender of the moral law? Yes, of course it should. Is that Catholic teaching? Does that cons is that considered integralism? I think that we had something that we, I think that we had worked out a modus vivendi in the United States, and it was destroyed by. Jews, basically, who would play the separation of church and state card, which is the, the same thing I just talked about here with the Jews saying that their, uh, their religion demands that they have abortion. This is the exact opposite of what they were saying in 1970s, where they were saying, no, the Catholic Church is imposing its views on everyone. That is not what happened it basically was the opposite of what we have now is the fact that the Jews imposed their religion on us through Roe versus Wade. They imposed their religion. So in the United States, we have a different situation. I think it's viable. I think it's possible. I think that we have to concentrate without any compromise on the implementation of the moral law. And I think that in doing that, we would find... Uh, corroboration with people like John Adams, who said that our Constitution doesn't function in the uh, cannot function in the absence of a moral people. So I think it worked. I think it was working. And I think that basically the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s destroyed it. And I think that now uh, the the admission of the Supreme Court is that that was untenable. 
It never worked. It's not going to work. We have to go back to some type of uh, devolved government, uh, local government, the resurrection of the state government, and allow the people to come up with some type of modus vivendi uh, on their own, which will ultimately have to be based on the moral law. So in terms of, uh, it's like, do we need a king? Do Catholics have to have a king? No. If that's what you mean by integralism, no, it doesn't. I think that this could work. The Catholic Church, there is no Catholic form of government. The Catholic Church can function in any number of different governments as long as it is not suppressed or subverted. Excellent. Here's, here's a, uh, I'll give you a final question on our subject, which is, um, Joseph Ratziger, one viewer says, if Joseph Ratziger let the genie out of the bottle in terms of the Jewish question at Vatican II, and tried to put it back in with Summarum Pontificum, was this a bad thing? How should we feel about Pope Francis essentially reversing Summarum Pontificum? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that Summarum Pontificorum was passive-aggressive behavior. And I think he was using the Latin, he was, I think, abusing the Latin mass uh, as a way of avoiding the Jewish question. He wanted to get the Jewish. This is, if you read the article, this is what the German theologian said when he announced that he was going to bring back the Latin Mass, uh, basically expanding it way beyond what John Paul II had done with uh, Ecclesia Day, which was supposed to be just for that group of people so that they don't go into schism with the Lefevrites. Ness has expanded across the board, and I think it was a passive aggressive way of dealing with the Jewish question. In other words, we'll bring back these prayers uh, about the perfidious Jews, because, but they're in Latin, so nobody will nobody will understand it. The, the theologians called them on that. I think I think there was a, an element of truth to what they said. Yeah, I, the the difficulty with that argument I, I find is that there's not. It's it's difficult to find evidence that he's trying to deal with the Jewish questions. He, he's, he doesn't write about that I'm trying to deal with the Jewish question. What he writes about is that there's been a rupture with the liturgical history since 1969, and we have to heal this rupture, whether or not the SSBX exists or not. This is a healing of the rupture. Um, and I, I do think that his, his revision of the Good Friday prayer, that could, I mean, that could be dealing with the Jewish question, for, certainly, but it, 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 perhaps that's passive aggressive because it's not restoring the exact same prayer. It's writing a new one. But well, I, yeah, I, th I think basically, OK, you deal with the liturgy, deal with the Jewish question, but don't conflate the two. I mean, th th I think that that was the problem. He, he could not deal with the Jewish question. No one can. No one can. I, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to brag here, but I think I single handedly resurrected the Jewish question. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there seems I, to be no I, one else really discussing I mean, the Jewish question but yourself. So. Well, no, I'm talking yeah. about writing the Jewish revolutionary spirit. I mean, in a sense, that's what I uh, that's what I set out to do. We can't go on this way pretending uh, that uh, that these people are our friends, uh, that they have no effect on foreign policy and blah, 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 blah. And we have to eliminate, we have to remove this completely from any type of racial discussion. It has nothing to do with race. It has to do with Logos and the rejection of Logos. So I think that, yeah, okay, if there's a problem with the liturgy, then fix the liturgy. Don't bring in the old uh, another liturgy to replace this liturgy. Fix the liturgy, which mean would mean in many ways fixing the music, fixing this, that, and the other thing. 
And I think that's part of the passive aggressive behavior. I don't want to deal with the liturgy problem and I don't want to deal with the Jewish question. So we'll just throw it all in the Latin mass. All right. Fair enough. Dr. Jones, any final, final thoughts, uh, anything new coming on culture wars, anything you want to promote or final thoughts on the German problem, the Jewish question. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> thank you for having me on. It's important to have discussions like this. We have to we have to get this stuff out in the open. And I have been, you know, it's been over 40 years now that I've been editing this magazine. And one thing leads to another. I told you already how Logos led to beauty as a transcendental. These are discussions that I think, you know, we have to continue. I, I'm happy to, to, to discuss them on the internet, but in many ways you have to do this in writing too, because it, it, the, all of the sophisticated thought takes place in writing. And once it's in writing, it's easier to discuss it here. So I encourage everyone to go to culturewars.com, subscribe to the magazine and uh, buy the books that we've discussed here tonight. Absolutely. Yes. Please, please don't do that. This is a very important conversation that needs to happen. Uh, and so you said that your book, Dangers of Beauty, is coming soon, this year, God willing. Um, Inshallah, what? yeah. Inshallah. <laughs> Inshallah. Inshallah. Okay. Uh, Inshallah, Rabina. Uh, all right. Well, uh, let's pray a Hail Mary then to end this out. And we're, let's see, icon of, we've been uh, promoting this the Russian Greek Catholic icon of Our Lady of Fatima, praying for uh, our brethren in Ukraine and Russia and everywhere to uh, for the conversion of our hearts. So let's let's pray for this conversation uh, to continue to be based on logos that we can uh, get into all these difficult issues and break through a lot of the mind control that's out there. All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.